So last week we talked about the science of self-control. We're going to continue on in that in part two this week. One of the things we talked about is the fact that self-control is not an act of the will. A lot of people miss or just assume that self-control, they misunderstand the fact that self-control is not an act of the will. Because most people, when, when we talk about self-control, the first thing they think about is, you know, I just, I just need to try harder. I need to work harder at this to get it to where I, I can do this. And, and they put it all on themselves. And a lot of times in Christianity, we, we tend to put that type of thinking into the minds of Christians. But it's not the truth because self-control is not an act of the will. It is a fruit of the Spirit. So when it comes to self-control, it's not a matter of trying harder, which is sort of, you know, it's, it's counterintuitive to our, our own thinking. The first thing we think of, <clears throat> man, I need to try harder, but that's not the case. In the context of this aspect of science of self-control, really what I'm talking about, what I'm teaching is this is, this is the basics. You know, uh, somebody was talking to me, maybe it was Sunday, I don't remember what day it was. They said, you know, every time I see you teach or hear you teach, you teach a lot of the same stuff in a different way, but it's a lot of basic stuff, but it's taught in a way that kind of connects things that I never connected before. And I, I'm a big proponent of the basics and mastering the basics. Anybody ever seen the Blue Angels or the Thunderbirds? If you go to the air show up here at Alliance or anywhere else, you see the, the Blue Angels, the Thunderbirds. Well, I watched a documentary one time, and they were interviewing a pilot who flew. I think he was either Blue Angels or, or the Thunderbirds. I don't remember which one. And they were talking to him about, you know, how do you do all that? Because, I mean, it's, they're impressive to watch as they do all their maneuvers and, and everything else. And it was an interesting thing that, that this pilot said. He said, you know, actually... What we do as Thunderbirds or even the Blue Angels, he said, all that is is the basic maneuvers that every pilot that goes through training learns. We just do it really close. And he said, the only way you can become a Blue Angel or a Thunderbird is if you master the basics. Those are the people we're looking for, is those who master the basics. And in Christianity, it's the same Thing. God is looking for people who master the basics. And a lot of times we want to go on into this deep theology and deep doctrine, and all that stuff is all fine, well, and good. But unless you master the basics, it's not going to do you any good. You have to master the basics. And it's not just a matter of intellectually understanding the basics. And I was at a, I don't remember if I mentioned this last week, but I was at a, a, uh, meeting of a group of pastors and ministers and ministry leaders in Burleson. They meet once a month. It's called the Burleson Christian Ministerial Alliance. And there was a, a pastor there who handed out a book to everybody, gave a free book to everybody who was there. He said, you know, I read this book. It's, it's by a, I think I did mention this last week. It's by an author who talks about the difference between the Eastern mindset and the Western mindset in the context of Christianity. In the Western mindset, we value knowledge. We value doctrine and theology and how much you know. In the Eastern mindset, they value obedience and how much you actually live out. And there's a big difference. Just because you know it doesn't mean you're doing it. Doesn't mean you're living it. And in the economy of the kingdom of God, obedience is everything. Everything. But obedience is an act is an outpouring of self-control because you can't obey unless you're under control. And because of sin, we're out of control. How many know our lives are completely out of control at times? <laughs> so we need more self-control. So what are the basics that bring us back to the point of getting to this underlying foundation of self-control that leads into obedience? Well, there's two things that I believe, are foundationally basic to Christianity. Number one is the gospel. You can't get away from the gospel. The gospel is foundational. And that is the fact that I cannot save myself. You cannot save yourself. The only way you overcome sin is through the power of the blood of Jesus Christ 
and his sacrifice. The only way you become righteous before God is by accepting Jesus Christ as your atonement, as your substitute. The gospel is not just an aspect of us going to heaven one day either. You know, a lot of times we present the gospel as we get to go to heaven one day. And that's, that's true, but there's a whole lot more to the gospel than just going to heaven one day. Unfortunately, we present the gospel again sometimes as it's something that happens in the future, but we don't connect it to the present. There is a present aspect of the gospel that we have to understand that is basic, that is foundational to the Christian life, and that is your relationship with God has been restored. That is the goal of the gospel. God's not in the, in the heaven population business. If he wants to populate heaven, he can populate heaven. That's not the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is to restore the relationship God intended to have with each and every one of us when he intended to create us from the very beginning. That is the goal of the gospel. It is all about relationship. Apart from relationship, there is no Christianity. Everything else is religion. And we're going to talk a little bit about religion tonight and how that has crept into Christianity and why religion doesn't work. But the foundational aspect of the gospel in the present is relationship. That's why we talk about spending time with the Lord on a daily basis. You know, one of the things we talked about last week is that one-year daily Bible reading plan is being in God's Word every day because that's where you develop the relationship. The other aspect of the foundational part of the basics of Christianity is transformation. That comes through the relationship. If you don't have a relationship, you cannot be transformed. It just doesn't happen. This is why it really disheartens me sometimes when the Christian world presents to the world a gospel that says, clean up your act and God will accept you. That is a lie. That is a false gospel. Because if they could clean up their act without Jesus, they wouldn't need Jesus. That's the whole point of the gospel, is we couldn't do it on our own. So if we present a gospel to the world that says, you go clean up your act and God will accept you, we're presenting a false gospel. We have to be very careful how we present ourselves to the world. That is, that is a gospel of religion, not relationship. And it's, 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 there's such a nuance there that sometimes we don't realize we cross that line in presenting ourselves to the world. It's not even in a gospel presentation. It's just the way we, we talk about how the world acts. The world can do nothing but what the world does because they don't have Jesus. To expect them to act in a biblical way, that it's not reasonable because they don't have that power. They don't have self-control in the context of the fruit of the Spirit. So transformation is a key aspect of the foundation of Christianity. Relationship, transformation. Transformation takes place within the context of relationship. And in that transformation, you don't just do different things, you become a different person. Jesus said in Mark 1.17, he sees the disciples and he says, come follow me and I will make you to become fishers of men. Make you to become. Not just do the things a fisher of men would do. You will become a fisher of men. The aspect of the gospel and the context of transformation is not just changing your behavior. It's changing you. You become a different person. You actually become the person God intended you to become when he first created you. When God created you and knit you in the womb, he had an intention of not just what he wanted you to do, but who he wanted you to become. That is infinitely more important than what you do. In Romans 12, 2, Paul talks about, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed 
by the renewing of your mind. That word in Greek for transformed is where we get our word metamorphosis. It's, it is the idea of a complete transformation, a complete metamorphosis. If you ever think of a, a caterpillar, when you look at a caterpillar, you know at some point that caterpillar is going to become a butterfly. But the caterpillar doesn't do anything, if you will, to become a butterfly. He doesn't go to a seminar, 10 steps on how to become a butterfly. 12 weeks to butterfly transformation. It doesn't happen. That's not what happens. It is a natural transformation process that the, the caterpillar experiences, but he does not initiate. And when that caterpillar is completely transformed, when you look at a butterfly, you see nothing of the caterpillar whatsoever. There's nothing left. And that's the aspect of transformation God wants to do in your life. That there is nothing left of the old you in the new you that's being transformed. But there is that process that takes place. And that process is messy. It is not a, it is not a clean cut, you know, 10 steps, boom, follow this, and, and you're done. Just like with that caterpillar, what goes on in that cocoon is messy. It is messy, and it takes time. And it's the same thing in the Christian life. That process takes, dare I say, years. Years. It is not something that happens overnight. There is a pattern you see in the Bible over and over and over again of God transforming people into the people he called them to be. And that pattern you see with Moses, Joseph, David, uh, Abraham, it didn't take a couple weeks. In many cases, it took decades for that to happen. And that process was messy. You think of Joseph Joseph, when he had his dreams of what God was going to do in his life, he had no idea what it was going to take for those dreams to be fulfilled. I guarantee you, when you know, Joseph tells these great dreams to his brothers and his parents, hey, this is what's going to happen. Y'all are going to bow down to me. It's going to be awesome, right? And then when his brothers sell him into slavery, Joseph didn't go, yeah, it's about time this thing started. He didn't do that. Because that was not in his expectation of how God was going to bring about those plans. But it was exactly what God intended to do. Because you see this in Genesis 50. At the end of the story, his brothers come to him and they bow down before him. They're thinking, "Uh uh-oh, dad's dead and now he's coming to get us. And Joseph says to his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. It was God's intention in the beginning to bring Joseph through this process. He knew this process would lead to Joseph going from being the Joseph who was very prideful about his dreams to becoming Prince of Egypt. But that process had to take place. And that process, it doesn't say exactly how long, but it was probably 10 to 15 years. Somewhere in that range, it wasn't overnight, and it wasn't easy. So that transformation process brings about self-control. If we want self-control, we have to be transformed. That is the goal of the relationship side of the gospel. So how do we get into this transformation process? You know, we talked about last week the need for transformation because of sin. We're all born with that genetically that spiritual genetic disease called sin. And it affects the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act. And we need something that is able to transform our soul. Transform us from the inside out, not the outside in. Fortunately, we have something that does do that. Remember, I used that illustration of the, the, the pill. If you're good, if you're physically sick, you have a physical sickness, you can take a pill that's chemically alive, that does in you what you cannot do in yourself. Well, 
sin is not physically alive. It's spiritually alive in the sense of a spiritual sickness. So we don't need a chemical pill. We need a spiritual pill. We need something that's spiritually alive that can attack that, phys- that, that spiritual disease we call sin. And there is no physical pill that can do that. But there is a spiritual medicine that can. It's called the Bible. In, in, Roman, uh, Romans, in Hebrews 4, the writer of Hebrews says that the word of God is living and active. It is spiritually alive. So when you intake this spiritual medicine by reading or listening to the word of God, you are literally taking medicine into you. Just like that little pill, just like you were to swallow that pill, you are swallowing the word of God into your soul, into your spirit to bring about that transformation. In, in James chapter 1, James tells us to receive with meekness the implanted word which has the power to save your soul. Now, James isn't talking to unbelievers. He's talking to believers. So he's not just talking about salvation from hell. He's talking about the salvation that the power of the word of God can bring in your life from the power of sin. It has the power to save your soul. Soul And that transformation leads to the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus said in John 15, 5, if you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. And we know in Galatians 5 that one of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So we see this thread running all the way through the New Testament as far as the aspect of transformation. So again, we talked about this last week. I'm gonna, I'll do a quick recap of what this is all about as far as the infamous circles. Okay, the body, the soul. When, again, when I talk about the soul, I'm talking about the mind, the will, and the emotions. When we're born, we're all born with a spiritually genetic disease at our core called sin. We're, we're born spiritually dead. Okay, it's because sin is at our core, and that sin infects our soul. It infects the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act. And that infection leads to the actions we traditionally call sin. But the reality is these actions are actually the symptoms of sin, not the source of sin. This is the source right here. Paul says in Romans, I know what I'm supposed to do, but I can't do it. I know what I'm not supposed to do, and that I keep doing. But it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin that is within me. Now, it doesn't, that does not absolve you of responsibility, but it does identify the source within you that is driving the, that, that desire to sin. It's what you know, the Bible calls that sin nature. Now, this is our state before we come to Jesus. As we talked about last week, the gospel, again, more than just going to heaven one day, the gospel is that great exchange. We still have the three circles, the body, the soul, and the spirit. Now, what happens in the gospel is Jesus, theologians call it the great exchange. Jesus takes out that sin and replaces it with the truth. What is that truth? He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So we become righteous through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, that, that means for the first time we're spiritually alive. The Holy Spirit comes in and he resides within us. This is why Peter says we are partakers of the divine nature because the literal spirit of God comes and lives within us. Uh, in, in, in the Gospels, you, you talk, we see that Jesus talks about us becoming the temple of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. In Joel, we, talk, we see that great prophecy that I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. 
Peter talks about us being the living stones, being built together to be the temple of God. So the Holy Spirit now literally resides within us. That means your spirit right now as you sit in this room, if you know Jesus, has been completely transformed. Your spirit does not need any more transformation. You are 100% holy, complete. This is why the Bible says you're righteous in God's sight. This is why the Bible says you are a holy nation, a priesthood, because your spirit right now is completely transformed. On that day of days when Jesus returns and we are, as Paul says, we're transformed in the twinkling of an eye, our spirit's already there. It's the soul and the body that will be transformed to match the spirit. But right now, the Spirit is totally... Everything you need to live the Christian life is already in you. You just don't realize it. Now, that infection that infected the way we think, the way we feel, and the way we act, that's still in our soul. It's just like, you know, I shake somebody's hand, they've got an infection. I touch my eye, infect my body. I wash the source of the infection off my hand but I still got to deal with the infection. We still have to deal with the infection. This is why a Christian can still sin, if you will. Okay? Again, that's the, that's the, the symptom. It's not the source. So in this context, as Christians, this is where we come to the point where we want self-control because we still got some of this going on. We're like, hey, what about, <laughs> can we please get rid of this? How do we get there? And that's what we talked about last week. And that's in the aspect of, of this aspect of transformation, we're talking about the Word of God or the Bible. Now, the Bible being spiritually alive is like that spiritual medicine. Now, one thing we didn't get into uh, last week as much as I would have liked to is most of the time when we read the Bible, we read, we want to read for information. And we go and look for doctrine and theology. You know, we hear Pastor Jeff and his great teaching, or we listen to Adrian Rogers, or we hear Dr. Tony Evans, or whoever. Books, radio, TV, whatever. And we go and we look in the Bible for this deep stuff. Like, where is it? Okay, I don't see any of this. Are they reading the Bible? And we go there and we look for information. One of the reasons we can't see the information we're looking for is because our mind is infected with sin sickness. The other aspect is, you've got to realize, the Bible is a spiritual book, not a natural one. The only way we can understand spiritual truth is through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. That is it. Period. What Pastor Jeff gets is not because Pastor Jeff is intelligent, which he is. I mean, you can be a member of Mensa, have an IQ of two bazillion, you're still not getting anything out of the Bible until it's revealed by the power of the Holy Spirit. So if you go to the Word and you don't get anything out of it, quote-unquote, information-wise or doctrine and theology-wise, it's because the Holy Spirit had nothing to show you at that time. Here's what the enemy does. You go into the Word, you read, you don't get anything out of it, and the enemy says, well, that's because you're just a loser. You're just not good enough. You're just not smart enough. Why don't you just put that down and let the experts deal with it? And you just show up on Sunday and Wednesday, and you'll be fine. You know why the enemy does that? Because the enemy knows the power of the Word. And the more time you spend in that word, the more you're going to get transformed and the more you're going to become who God created you to be and the more damage you're going to do to his kingdom. That's why the enemy is trying to get you out of the word of God. And he does a really good job of it. Because according to Barna, less than 10% of Christians read the Bible every day. Less than 10%. And when I ask people, why don't you read? They say, well, I don't get anything out of it. What are you looking for? I don't know. What am I looking for? Well, you know, well, I see Pastor Jeff and I hear Dr. T oh, you're looking for information. <laughs> Let me talk to you about that. Because you cannot get anything out of it unless it's revealed. And even if you do get something out of it, unless your mind's been transformed, it's going to get distorted by that sin sickness. So part of the reason the Holy Spirit doesn't reveal things to us, he's showing us mercy 
Because he wants to transform our mind first before he reveals anything that could possibly get distorted and lead you down a wrong path. And it's not a condemnation of you. It's a mercy aspect on you. It's like, uh, uh, you know, anybody got a 13, 14-year-old who said, hey, can I go drive the car? No. Are you, being, are you being mean to them? No. You just know if you put them in the car at 13 or 14, they're not going to have a good time. They think they are, but they're not. They're going to end up hurting themselves. It's going to do more damage than good. It's the same thing here. We're like, hey, Dad, can I drive the car? Nope. 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 <laughs> not yet. Get a little bit more mature in the aspect of transformation, and then I'll give you more. And then I'll give you more. But if we stop, we stop growing. You know, the old adage of uh, people who, who say on a resume, you know, I've got 10 years of experience in this particular job or this particular skill or whatever. But the reality is a lot of times what they have is one year repeated nine times. They don't have 10 years. And in the Christian life, people say, oh, I've been a Christian for 40 years. Mm, you've been like a Christian for two years. You just repeated that second year another 38 years because you stopped growing. So just because your clock says or your calendar says, I've been a Christian for 10 years, well, you need to go back and look at your transformation clock and see what year you're on because that's the one that counts, not your calendar on the wall. And that's the one God's looking at, is what spiritual age are you? You know, it's like dogs, you know, a dog is one year old, is really seven or whatever. Well, it's just the reverse with Christians. <laughs> you subtract seven instead of adding or whatever. The reality is our spiritual maturity is not based on a physical calendar. It's based on transformation. So when you read the word of God, the number one thing you need to feed is not your mind, it's your spirit. You have to feed your spirit. And every time you read the word of God, whether you understand it or not, is irrelevant. I've got these little AirPods. Uh, man, I've got these in my ears all the time, and I'm listening to stuff. A lot of times I'll listen to the word. And I'll be walking around Walmart. You need the word in Walmart. <laughs> Be walking around Walmart and I'm just listening to the word or Albert or whatever it is. Do I capture all of it with my mind? Not even close. But I know that my spirit's capturing 100% of it. And I'm constantly feeding my spirit. Because when you feed your spirit, here's what happens as you feed your spirit, it interacts with that truth within your spirit. And it begins to divide between soul and spirit. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing between soul and spirit. And what is the division that it's dividing between? It's dividing between the truth and the lie, because really that's what sin is. Sin is a lie that you believe about yourself, about God, about other people, about reality, whatever. And as you get that word in you, it begins to discern between the truth in your spirit and the lie in your soul. And it reveals the difference. And now you've got a choice. Which one am I going to believe? Which one am I going to hold on to? That's the transformation process. And as that truth begins to overcome the lie, guess what else goes with it? what we traditionally call sin. That's where self-control comes from, right there. All of a sudden, this stuff just starts disappearing. You're like, how did that happen? I've been trying to do that all my life. Oh, it's because you're using your willpower. And as I said last week, willpower has no power over sin. Absolutely no power over sin. So let's talk about a couple things beyond this in, in the context of the science of self-control because we have to understand a couple ways that we tend to use willpower 
in order to understand why it doesn't work. Now, we talked about religion a few minutes ago. This is, this is why religion doesn't work. Basically, what religion does is sets up two lists. A to-do list and a to-don't list. Do this, don't do that. That's basically the foundation of religion. This is the good list. And of course, this is the bad list. And the goal is to do much, as much of this as possible and not do this. Here's the problem. The, the implied, it's more an implicit lie of religion as opposed to an explicit one. The implicit lie of religion is that the goal is perfection. And that's impossible. Perfection is impossible. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. Even Billy Graham wasn't perfect. Paul wasn't perfect. Perfection is a lie. Religion sets you up against the standard of perfection so you're constantly being condemned. And here's what happens is, okay, yeah, I see more of this going on in my life, but I'm still seeing some of this. So if, if I'm doing more of this, but I keep seeing this, because, you know, we could do a whole, you know, how many, how many know you can have a great week? Then Saturday night, uh-oh, and this negates this whole thing right here. One thing happened Saturday night, the whole week is shot, baby. I ain't even going to church on Sunday. Why? Because we believe the lie of perfection. And this, just a little bit of this is always in our own mind is going to negate all of this. And here's the aspect of, of identity. You know, we talked about identity a little bit last week. Identity is the foundation of character. Character is the foundation of behavior. If you want to change your behavior, you've got to change your character. If you want to change your character, you've got to have a change in identity. The only thing that will change identity is the gospel. That's it. There's nothing else that can change identity. So in this context, when it comes to identity... You could be doing this all week long. You mess up on a Friday or Saturday night. And the real question is, which one am I? Who am I? The number one lie that we all believe in the context of sin is I'm not good enough. Everybody believes that. That is the common, that is the core of sin is the belief I'm not good enough. And anything that we do or that occurs in our life that reinforces that lie gets us to question whether or not God loves us, whether or not we're good enough. And religion will always reinforce the lie that I'm not good enough because religion has that implied lie that perfection is the goal. You cannot be perfect. It's impossible. God does not expect perfection. That's why the gospel is not a one-time event. This is why John says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That's not a one-time deal. That's an ongoing deal. The goal of the gospel is not to pray a prayer, walk an aisle, sign a car to become a church member one time and you're done with it. The goal of the gospel is to learn to apply the power of the forgiveness of Jesus Christ to your whole life 24-7, 365. Because God knows you cannot be perfect. Nowhere in the Bible does Jesus say it's now time to be perfect. That is a lie, and that's what religion does. It sets us up for failure every single time.
Let's talk in a, a, another aspect of religion. See, religion is based on the law. We know a lot about the law. We've, we talked about the law in the context of you know, the, the Old Testament law. The law was, was designed for one purpose, and it was not to save us. The law cannot save us. If it could, we wouldn't need Jesus. God would have just given us the law. In Romans chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, Paul says this. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. The goal of sin is to expose, I'm sorry, the goal of law is to expose sin for what it is. In Romans 7, 13, Paul says, Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me, though what is good, through what is good, so that sin, through the commandment, might become exceedingly sinful. In other words, the goal of sin is to, uh, sorry, the goal of the law is to expose sin for sin. That's all the law does. It shows us that we need Jesus. That is the goal of the law. It cannot save us. Sin's power source. See, here's why when, when we talk about religion, religion is a very dangerous thing. We think, oh, well, you know, okay, just rules and regulations. Okay, it's no big deal. Yeah, religion, relation. No, it's a very dangerous thing because... In 1 Corinthians 15.56, Paul writes this. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. When you add law into somebody's life, you are empowering the sin within them. This is why religion doesn't work. When you try and get somebody to follow the rules, you are literally setting them up for failure. Because the power of sin is the law. The only way you overcome sin is through Jesus. Period. And you do that through relationship that leads to transformation. Without that transformation... The only thing you've got is religion, and in reality, through religion, you are literally setting people up for failure. You're giving the sin within them the very power it needs to exist, the very power it needs to overcome their life. We have to be very, very careful with religion. It's one of the greatest deceptions the enemy has ever used is to create in us the belief that law is the answer, when in reality, law is the very thing that will destroy us. Now, is the law bad? No. Because the law's purpose was just to expose sin. It was never meant for anything else. But when we use it to overcome sin, that's when it becomes death to us. It was never meant to be used to save us. Only Jesus can do that. So in Christianity, we have to be very, very careful that we do not allow law to become our Savior. Only Jesus can do that. So how does this process work? We talked about the whole formula last week. There are no formulas in Christianity, but I'm giving you one. Consistency over time equals progress. That's your formula in Christianity. What is the consistency? What are you being consistent in? Your relationship with Jesus. Be consistent in spending time with the Lord, being in the Word, being in prayer with Him on a daily basis. Again, perfection is a lie. 
That's it. That's Christianity in a nutshell. It's consistency over time equals progress. Now, there's one thing about this process, okay, of transformation. There's one other thing I want to point out in the context of the science of self-control. Remember, when we're talking about self-control, we're talking about overcoming the symptoms of sin by attacking the source of sin through the fruit of the Spirit. Now, there's an aspect of this process that we need to be aware of that trips people up. You know, just like we were talking about earlier, you know, the law tends to trip people up. They think that, well, as long as I follow the rules, I'm okay. That's not true. And there's an aspect of the process that people don't understand that trips people up as well. You know, again, we were talking earlier with the, with the word. Well, I don't understand it, so I'll stop reading it. That's a trap. And there's one other trap I want to talk about tonight, and that's the trap here that takes place in this process. Okay, this is a timeline. Let's look at this as a timeline of your life. You're born and you die. At some point, as a Christian, you come to know Jesus. Okay? So, the top part of this line is the natural side of things. This is the fruit. This is what you see in your life. This is the spiritual side. Okay, this is the root. Every problem you have in the natural has a spiritual root. And when we, as we live our lives, we're constantly planting seeds, either good or bad, in our decisions, in our thoughts, in our actions, all that stuff. We're constantly planting seeds. Now, before you come to know Jesus, you're planting bad seed. Because you have a sin core. There's nothing, you can't do anything about it. And you reap a bad harvest. So the top is the harvest, the bottom is the seed. So you have this constant planting and constant reaping prior to coming to know Jesus. So at the first, for the very first time, when you come to know Jesus, you all of a sudden have the ability to start planting good seeds. Here's the problem. And I love the way Pastor Jeff puts this. Pastor Jeff says, you reap what you sow, more than you sow, later than you sow. Yeah, I was just up here at Starbucks, where all great things happen. And up at this Starbucks here by uh, Everman Parkway, there's a, a field out there, and they're growing, I think it's corn is what's out there right now. And it's getting big. You know, they're getting close to harvest. Well, they didn't plant the corn yesterday. They planted it months ago. And the amount of corn they get is more than the seeds they put in the ground. But it shows up later than they planted. It's the same in our lives. We reap what we sow more than we sow. And the key is to understand it's later than you sow. Because here's what happens. People come to know the Lord. And they start planting good seeds even though they've stopped planting the bad seeds, they're still reaping that bad harvest. And this is what I call the transition zone. It's in this zone where you're still reaping the bad, but sowing the good, that 90 and I'm making the 90% up, but 90%, in my opinion, 90% of Christians quit. They quit. You know, it's funny. If I do something wrong and I don't immediately experience the bad consequences, I'm encouraged to do it again. But if I do something right and I don't experience the consequences immediately, I'm encouraged not to do it again. That's a little insanity going on right there. And that's exactly what happens in this transition zone. We stop doing what's wrong, but we're still reaping the harvest while we're doing what's right. But we don't wait long enough to start reaping the good. And we quit. The key to all of this is don't quit. 
Don't quit. Because if you quit, you're started all over again. You end up at the beginning of the transition zone. You just recycle yourself right back to here. And you got to start all over again. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will reap from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap from the Spirit. And let us not grow weary in doing good. For in due season we will reap a harvest if we do not quit. If you want self-control in your life, you've got to be consistent over time to experience progress and push through the transition zone. If you will do that, you will experience the self-control you've been looking for all your life. It will manifest through transformation in your life. It will not come through self-will or more willpower. And in this transition zone, you're going to be faced with the division between your soul and your spirit. And in that division, you're going to have to answer the question, do I believe I'm worth it? That's why people quit. Because they go back and believe the old law. I'm not good enough. I'm not worth pushing through. I deserve the bad. Because I'm not good enough. And that is a lie. If you're in Jesus, you've been made worthy. You've been made good enough. You are worth fighting for. And you're worth looking at that person in the mirror and saying, you are worth the fight. Let's stand up. So here's what I want you to do tonight. I want you to take a minute. I want you to just close your eyes and I want you to spend a minute with the Lord. And I want you to ask a tough question of the Lord. I want you to ask the Lord to reveal to you if you believe, whether you believe you're worthy or whether you believe you're not. And it's not an aspect of condemnation. This is not an aspect of you condemning yourself saying, oh yeah, you know, I'm a loser because I don't believe, because I believe I'm a loser. That's not the point. The point is to ask the Lord to do a little spiritual surgery in your life. To divide between the truth in your spirit and the lie in your soul. So take a minute and let the Lord speak to you about what you believe. Because what you believe will determine whether or not you're going to fight for yourself.
And Lord, that they are worth fighting for. That you already fought for them. You died for them. And that that death was not just an act of necessity it was an act of desire so tonight Father I pray that you would continue from this point forward to reveal to every single person here your love for them you would draw them close Lord I pray Holy Spirit you would open the understanding of each and every person right now to the truth of your word to the truth of your desire to transform their lives and that you created them on purpose for a purpose and that purpose is good and Lord I pray that you would encourage each and every person regardless of where they are in that transition zone or where they are in their lives Lord that you would encourage them not to quit and that they would just take that next step And through faith, they would believe that you, Lord, will bring about your fruit in their life. Not just the self-control fruit, but all of it. And I thank you, Lord, that in in your, from your perspective, Lord, you already see them a year, two years, five years, ten years down the road. And you already see the outcome. So, Lord, we thank you in advance for that good outcome, for that good harvest that will come to pass. So we just speak that good harvest over each and every person in here right now. We just call it forth in Jesus' name. And we thank you for it. And, Lord, we pray that in that harvest, your name would be glorified. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said.